At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email CampbellLawReporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Thank you for joining the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. I'm Brian Hedrick. And I'm Tom Stockton. On this episode, we are here with Dean Matthew Homewood, who is here visiting Campbell Law from Nottingham Trent University in the UK. First, I would like to say welcome to Raleigh, North Carolina, and welcome to Campbell. And I hope you're enjoying your visit thus far. Yeah, everything's been great so far. Now, the first question is if you could just take a moment, introduce yourself, let the listeners know a little bit about you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a a genuine pleasure to be here. My name is Matthew Homewood, and I'm the Deputy Dean at Nottingham Law School, which is part of Nottingham Trent University in England, where I work closely with the Executive Dean, Dean Chapman, on all aspects of the law school's activities. And as a member of the university leadership team, I've got a role in the strategic direction activities of the university too. A little bit about myself, I guess I became involved in the legal field a, a little later on in my career than some of my colleagues. Essentially, I was headed for a different career altogether. And whilst I'd always been interested in studying law when I was younger, I perhaps didn't have the confidence to pursue it, and so I went into a different area altogether. However, I kind of regretted not, not going into law at that point, and so when I subsequently spotted an opportunity on a part-time course, I, I decided to go for it at, at that stage. You said you went into another area, so kind of before you got into that legal area, what were you really doing then? Yeah, so it's a rather interesting route into law. So I initially studied a completely different area altogether, so I read computer science at university, and I then took another kind of shift and started studying botany and plant physiology before then setting up a my own company. But as I say, I always felt drawn to law, and so there was kind of an itch there that needed to be scratched, if you like. So I saw an opportunity to attend law school on a part-time basis to obtain my legal qualifications. And I was fortunate at the time because I didn't have too many uh, ties or commitments. Decided it was really what I wanted to do, so I went for it at that point. It's obviously a lot of hard work, significant commitment time-wise as well, because I, I stood my law qualifications while I was working full-time. I did actually study law at Nottingham Law School myself, so you know I can speak very passionately about the place because the support that I had was fantastic and that enabled me to achieve my ambitions. Subsequently, I was fortunate to be offered a full lectureship, so, um, well, 15 years ago now, and I specialized in European Union law primarily, but also in uh, property law too. My last question before I hand it over to Tom is you said you studied there. How was your experience? My experience was excellent. As I said, I kind of stayed on a part-time basis. I've been working during the day, and then I studied uh, my undergraduate degree in the evenings, so Tuesdays and Thursday evenings, I'd go off to university and I would come study, study them. I had great support from my tutors. The structure of the course was superb and it made sure that I kind of picked up everything I needed and also kind of developed the skills that I needed that were going to help me uh, going forward as well. So yes, I've kind of seen all kind of aspects of grad, postgraduate and obviously as a member of the academic staff there too. Well, we'd love to ask you a little bit about Nottingham Trent University. I think when many Americans think of Nottingham, they recall the stories of Robin Hood and the sheriff. <laughs> what can you tell us about the history of the university and, and maybe some interesting parts about the campus? So it's a law school, you're right, we're kind of part of Nottingham Trent University. It's a very big university, we've got over 40,000 students and staff, and we span kind of five university sites. We're one of the largest and most influential higher education institutions in, in the country. And established in 1843, so we've got real history there. We've got a long history of unlocking barriers to uh, unlocking potential and uh, breaking down barriers and making a real difference to lives around the world. So we have schools within the university. Obviously, the law school is based at the city campus, but we also have other campuses around uh, as well, all quite different in, in, in style. 
we've been very fortunate. Well, I say fortunate. We've had great recognition, I think, of the work that we do as a university, and that's resulted in various awards. And most recently, the Times and Sunday Times Modern University of the Year 2022. But yeah, we've been uh, University of the Year in 2017 from the Times Higher Education Awards, and uh, again, the University of the Year from the Guardian in 2019. So we're very proud. We've picked up lots of awards along the way, both at the university uh, and as kind of individual schools uh, as well. But yeah, we're a kind of big cosmopolitan university with you know a really comprehensive range of programs for, for today's needs. Okay, Dean Homewood, what can you tell us about the law school within Nottingham Trent University and its background and, and its history and its involvement on campus? Okay, thanks. Thank you. So as mentioned previously, the law school is based on the city campus and we've been delivering excellence in English education now for over 55 years. We're one of the largest and the most innovative law schools in the UK. In fact, I think we're the fourth largest law school on undergraduate enrolls. So we've got over 100 staff, we've got approximately 3,000 students. Our staff is made up of academic researchers and practitioners who are all uh, experts in their field. Key aspects of the uh, of the law school and our identity is our in-house teaching law firm so that's uh, called NLS Legal so students spanning all years and courses can support with the running of this fully regulated law firm they work on real cases under the supervision of experienced lawyers it's an innovative model it's had a really positive impact on students and the community and we celebrated uh, recently at the national lexus nexus legal awards where nls legal was actually crowned law firm of the year 2022 now it's a fully regulated law firm and in winning this award the competitors weren't just you know clinics from other law schools this was law firms across the country so uh, we're really proud to kind of be swimming in, the, in, in that particular space and as i say winning the award we're really proud also proud to say that uh, we've achieved financial awards for our clients totally now you know in excess of five and a half million since uh, 2014 so really proud of that we do a range of services and as I say, the, the key thing is both intracurricular and extracurricular students are involved throughout. We've got a pretty unique, dynamic and personal law school community. We create lots of opportunities for our students, be that mooting, volunteering, work experience, overseas placements, summer schools, guest lectures, and lots, lots, lots more. The other thing to mention is that our, uh, our courses are accredited or approved by a range of professional bodies. That includes the Assistance Regulation Authority, Bar Standards Board, Intellectual Property Regulation Board, Charter Institute of Trademark Attorneys. We've got really extensive links with the legal and other professions, both at home and overseas. That helps us to reflect upon the informed design of our course portfolio and ensures that we continue to lead the way in legal education. We're especially proud as we you know i'm here talking about a research degree especially proud to be able to say that 100 percent of ntu's research submitted to the law unit of assessment was assessed to be world-leading or internationally excellent in terms of research impact and that's according to the latest research excellence framework in 2021 so it's a real kind of recognition of the quality of research that's been undertaken in the school and that's part of the community that uh, campbell law school students can be part of what can you tell Tell us about how Nottingham and Campbell got involved together to create this LLM program. It's really, you know, an awful lot of credit needs to go to uh, the vision of uh, Dean Lennon for seeing this opportunity and kind of identifying us as a school to, to work with where we have the requisites staff base, both in terms of academic research staff and professional staff as well, where we could really do something quite unique and innovative, which is what the Campbell Nottingham program's all about, really. It's quite a unique program in being able to recognise the work that's undertaken through a student's JD um, and effectively give credit to that so that we can then award through completion of a, uh, a rigorous academic uh, research task uh, for English MLM, which can be uh, awarded at the same time as the uh, JD. So Dean Homewood, uh, I understand that the legal licensing system in England is complicated and, and quite a bit different than it is in the United States, but what can you tell us about the types of law degrees and practice areas you know, available to practitioners in England? We understand that there are two separate degrees, the LLM and the LLB. So what can you tell us about those? You're right, it's, it is complex. I'll do my best to kind of uh, get 
you know, explain it in a kind of simplified way. So an LLM, certainly the LLM that we're talking about in relation to the international legal studies is a kind of rigorous research-focused academic degree. And that provides students with the opportunity to focus on a specialist area with support from uh, an experienced academic expert in that area too. It's also possible that uh, some professional qualifications have an LLM aspect to them, so that even though it's a professional vocational qualification, there is an aspect within it which meets the requirements of uh, UK, uh, sorry, an English LLM, and uh, so therefore an LLM could be awarded as part of that. So we have, so Nottingham Law School, for example, we have an LLM legal practice course, which is a kind of vocational course, but with an LLM aspect to it, but quite different in style to a traditional, purely academic research-focused LLM. The LLB, which is the undergraduate law degree that uh, is undertaken in the UK, traditionally, in order to qualify as a solicitor uh, or barrister in England and Wales, students would complete either an LLB, which is the undergraduate degree, or if they've studied a non-law degree, there is a conversion course that they can do, which is, uh, uh, you know, such as the GDL, which is the graduate diploma. What characterises these courses is that you'll study the foundations of legal knowledge within those courses, so that is public, trusts, torts, contracts, EU law, criminal law, and land law. So if you do that in an LLB, that gives it a qualifying law degree status. So if you think about that as being the kind of first building block, you would then go on to study a vocational program before undertaking a period of practical training. And that's the same, uh, well, it used to be the same directly whether you wanted to become a barrister or a solicitor, although the vocational training and the workplace training bit would be different. There have been some recent changes, though, to qualification as a solicitor, in particular in England and Wales, which have changed things significantly. So there's no longer a, a requirement to study the foundations of legal knowledge in a you know, formal programme of study, or indeed to undertake a vocational training course in order to become a solicitor. There's still a requirement to undertake uh, workplace training. So how can the degree, the LLM from Nottingham Trent University, help a student from Campbell Law? I think it can really help in terms of the employability prospects so for an individual that's undertaken the, undertaken the course. It gives you a recognised international qualification, which is evidence for a range of transferable skills that uh, proven are sought after by employers and therefore will set you apart from your competitors. Also shows dedication and commitment to undertake uh, high-level research in a chosen topic, and often this chimes with the work of an employer. We know from previous students on the programme that what they did on the LLM International Legal Studies course has been a distinct focus during their interviews. Also provides you with a bit of an opportunity to create a legacy through publication of your work with the support of an uh, you know, an expert academic supervisor. And that's obviously a really lovely thing to kind of look back on, something which I think adds prestige to your own profile, but also to, to firms as well. Also, I think it's a really wonderful experience to have that focus on a specific research task when you've got the right support to do so. And of course, the unique structure of the program means that it's flexible enough that you can actually achieve that. And uh, as I say, it comes to the point of uh, graduating with both the JD and the LLM at the same time. Can you tell us some more about the key features of the program and, uh, and how the program helps com students combine academic and practical aspects of legal practice? So those key features uh, of the program I'd identify as the it's a real credential, an internationally recognized credential in that English LLM. It's understood that the obtaining such a qualification requires rigorous, in-depth, independent uh, research which is done with, uh, under the supervision of a, uh, an expert, uh, but also relies heavily on the, on the skills of the individual to undertake and commit to a research task of, of that size. It's quite unique in the sense that we're able to do it in a very flexible way, which serves uh, as a comes to Nottingham, have a Nottingham experience for the residential periods, where there'll be presentations to academic staff there. Uh, along with the academic supervisor, the expert supervisor who will be uh, working with the individual to complete the research piece, but other else, uh, also other academics within the uh, within the school too. We have a range of other kind of academic activities that take place during the residential, and I don't mind saying there's some rather lovely kind of social aspects to it as well, which we all enjoy. But an awful lot of it is studied kind of at home in a flexible way through a distance learning approach, whereby 
great flexibility in how the individual wants to work with their supervisor. So we can have you know, very regular meetings on teams or we can adapt that down to the uh, needs of the individual. I suppose other things I'd point to is the skills that it helps you develop by undertaking that sort of program. So to problem solving skills, things that kind of give you a competitive edge uh, in the market. In terms of the combining the academic and the practical, obviously it's a rigorous research degree, so it allows you to explore in depth in an academic context things that you're looking at in a very practical sense through the JD, enables you to look at them through a comparative lens. So thinking back through some of the subjects that I've, uh, I know Cambridge students have explored in the past, that practical application has been key. But what has to set the work apart is that real opportunity to question the law and to compare it to other jurisdictions, make recommendations for reform. So that's very much where I see that uh, fusion of the academic and practical. And what requirements exist for joining this program as a student at Campbell? So as a student at Campbell, uh, it's available to all students who've completed the first year of their Juris Doctorate degree, and they've taken the foundations of critical legal thought, research, and analysis course. It's that course that will prepare you fantastically, I have to say, for the presentation of your research to Nottingham Law School academics, and they can then uh, work with you to hone your research and support you in developing it further. We have a residential period, as I referred to, in Nottingham, which takes place in both the autumn and the spring break. Uh, Caitlin Swift will be best able to advise uh, when's the best time to attend a residential based upon the completion of, of that course. The March residential is particularly interesting as we're often uh, joined by judges uh, at that time. But yeah, in terms of uh, requirements, essentially complete, uh, making sure that you're signed up for that course and you've uh, completed the first year of the, uh, of the JD. In the meeting earlier today about how far you've seen people progress, so what's your favorite progression story? I've got to be a little bit wary because I, I obviously don't want to be able to identify individuals, but uh, it's genuinely the case that the preparation that's undertaken at Campbell beforehand means the standard presentation is given. It's, it's pretty fantastic. However, the purpose of giving that presentation is so that feedback can be gained and that can help shape the direction of the, uh, of the research piece. And that's really where we're able to, to add value. So I can think, as I say, I don't want to uh, identify any individuals, but I can think of uh, a presentation that has been given, which uh, was presented excellently, included an awful lot of work that had gone up until that point as a research piece that was going to meet the outcomes of the course. It felt uh, quite a, a long way off, although it was an extremely interesting area. And you're never quite sure how somebody's going to respond. So when somebody's put an awful lot of work in beforehand, you're not quite sure how somebody's going to respond to uh, constructive feedback from uh, you know, uh, academic colleagues. And, you know, as, I think as the feedback was being given, I was trying to kind of read the individuals and, you know, has this been taken on board? You know, ultimately we all want the same thing. We want to see a you know, fantastic piece that comes out of that um, and successful completion of the programme. I suppose that's kind of where I left it during that, uh, you know, at that time. And then a little while later, I have the pleasure of actually coming to uh, Campbell to join you for your graduation in May. And it's a real pleasure to be able to kind of see individuals who are presented uh, some time ago now actually being successful in the award and then actually being able to uh, to hunt them and to be part of that experience. What I do in preparation for that is I make sure that I read all of the, you know, when anybody successfully completes the program, I want to read the dissertation, I want to really understand what they've, what they've done. And, and that's really kind of where I got to as soon as I kind of started looking at what, you know, a particular individual had written, which resulted in an absolutely, you know, fantastic piece in the end. And it was kind of clear where they'd taken the feedback on board and how, how to steer things. So that's probably kind of one of my most satisfying experiences is kind of seeing it in its quite rough form, taking the feedback on board uh, and then actually bringing it to something which, uh, you know, was certainly a publishable quality and, and something which uh, which the individual could be very proud of. So it was kind of the best bits of both really. It was kind of Campbell and Nottingham Law School kind of working together and collaborating uh, in a way which kind of produced something of real value at the end. And as far as people who've completed this program, as far as you know, what have they gone on to do? 
I'm aware of some former students who have gone on to create their own podcast, which I, I listen to regularly. So that's uh, uh, that's that's really interesting. I've met up with uh, a couple of others who are in areas of law which I know that their dissertation related to. So that's been uh, that's been very satisfying uh, as well. What's interesting is speaking to them. The it's clear through the process that they've gone through in undertaking uh, interviews and looking at employment opportunities that the LLM really has given them something a bit extra, something different to what their competitors have had when they're, when they're seeking out those roles. So. And now here at Campbell, as you know, our focus is on leading with a purpose. And here at the Campbell Law Reporter, our mission is to report with purpose. Now, I'd like to ask you, what does it mean to you to lead with purpose? For me, it's about more than saying it, it's about doing it. And as part of the university, we have uh, the Confetti Institute of Creative Technologies. And they coined the mantra, doing it for real, uh, which I really like. And that, for me, is the kind of essence of this. So if I think about an example of that, you know, very real terms, um, again, it's about doing it, not talking about it. Nowhere is that better represented than, you know, the law school than in our uh, what we refer to as NLS Legal. So NLS Legal is a teaching law firm that we have, which is um, a fully regulated uh, law firm based within the university itself. So as a law school, like many others, we, we can talk about a commitment to the delivery of transformational legal education, supporting access to justice. But we want to do that in a very real and meaningful way. So how do we move from kind of saying it to doing it? Well, exactly that. So NLS Legal, set up, you know, we set up a fully regulated law firm uh, in 2015. That's a major milestone in the development of, kind of pro bono uh, advice clinic that we had back in uh, 2002. So NLS Legal uh, as an exempt charity, it's a wholly owned subsidiary uh, of Nottingham Trent University. And in terms of its structure, it holds an alternative business structure, uh, which is uh, an ABS license from the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. In terms of the model, it's got parallels with the teaching hospital model that you, that you know might see in the uh, medicine discipline, providing the opportunity for students to obtain valuable work experience and to develop practical skills alongside their studies. NLS Legal was actually the first of its kind when it became regulated uh, in 2015, and it's it's a model which is uh, very rare in both the UK and internationally. What do we do? Well, legal advice, assistance, representation is provided on a not-for-profit basis to individuals that can't access legal aid or afford legal representation across a large area of service, uh, a large range of service areas. And that provides a vital service to the community. And we actually, you know, we resulted in us recovering nearly a million pound in compensation, settlements and benefits for clients in the last year that were reported upon. And that's now brought up our cumulative total to an impressive kind of five and a half million pound. So I guess when I talk about leading, you know, leading with purpose, it's very much, as I say, kind of doing it, not just saying it. And that's a kind of example of, of where we've done that in practice. Dean Homeward, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. Um, if, if listeners have any questions or they want to get their hands on some more information about the LLM program at Nottingham, what's the best way to do that? Well, there's various ways. So we have a, a kind of website. So if anybody was to search for Nottingham Law School LLM International Legal Studies, you'd be able to go to the web page there and uh, all things uh, through that page. Uh, Caitlin Swift at Campbell Law School would be a really good contact. Um, we work closely on all aspects of the program. Alternatively, I'm really happy for anybody to feel free to contact me direct. My email address, if you, uh, it's useful for you to have it, I suppose it can be put in the accompanying notes as well, is uh, matthew.homewood at ntu.ac.uk. So if anybody wants to contact me direct, I'd be really happy to hear. Thank you, Dean Homewood, for joining us on the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. That's great. Thanks very much. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. This is the Campbell Law Minute. I'm Stephen Dinkle. Are you interested in attending law school but can't leave your current job? Sounds like the Campbell Flex program might be just for you. Campbell Flex is a program that enables entering law students to earn a Juris Doctor degree by taking fewer hours each semester than required by the full-time program. Flex students have the same classes, faculty, and resources as traditional students. They also have zero employment restrictions. And Flex students can make a schedule based on their professional and personal needs. The Flex program is perfect for 
working professionals, paralegals eager to move to the next level in a legal career, students who cannot commit to a traditional course load, or individuals who have recently taken the LSAT and have not enrolled in law school yet. For more information, visit the Campbell Law School website to read the detailed program description or to find out more information about information sessions. The last information session of 2022 is November 10th, and they kick up back again on January 10th, March 9th, and May 5th. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. We are back on the Campbell Law Reporter. I'm Brian Hedrick, and I'm here with Leanne Maccabee talking more about the Campbell and Nottingham LLM program. Thank you for joining us. And thanks for having me. So first, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, specifically why you decided to take part in this program? Yes. So like you said, Brian, my name is Leanne Maccabee. I'm a 3L at Campbell. The reason I chose to participate in the program kind of stems back to undergrad and high school. I always wanted to travel internationally and do study abroad programs, but it just never panned out in undergrad. So when I saw Campbell offered international opportunities, I didn't see a lot of other law schools offered those, opportun- offered those opportunities. So I wanted to participate. Um, also, the focus of it is writing, and I love writing, and this gives you a chance to have a published article, whether it's a law review or some type of other legal kind of entity. And I think that's really cool to be able to graduate law school with a published article on a, a research topic. So you mentioned you've always wanted to do this study abroad thing. You never got to do it. So for you, kind of what was the preparing stage? Because I imagine you didn't have much experience preparing to do something like this. Yes. It was a lot of excitement. Um, So my boyfriend, Corey Goss, he's also a Campbell Law student here. He actually was going with me. Neither of us had ever traveled internationally. I had only ridden on an airplane maybe once before. Um, So it was a little nerve-wracking. But I'm also a planner. Corey likes to joke that if I wasn't in law school, I'd be a travel agent. So I was having a ton of fun with the planning stage of it. But I wouldn't say it's difficult because the way that Campbell sets it up, they tell you where you need to be in the times. So all you've got to worry about is just getting the plane tickets set up. It was a little additional work for us because we planned to go to London ahead of time. And so since we plan to go to London ahead of time, we kind of had to work around that to get to Nottingham. But as far as just getting to Nottingham, it's just making sure you get a plane ride that gets you there and a plane ride back. So you mentioned going to London ahead of time. Um, and I imagine there are some periods where you had downtime during the program. Yes. What did you kind of do during that downtime? So you have a lot of opportunities. Like I said, we went to London beforehand. And then that Sunday night, the program starts Monday and ends Wednesday, I believe. So that Sunday night, we met with the dean and the admissions dean at the time and had dinner. And then the actual program is Monday, I think it's nine to maybe four-ish. So you end up having the entire evening to yourself all of the days. And then Wednesday, you don't even have, I don't even think a full half day. So you end up having that entire day to yourself as well. Um, So you have an option. You can either go sightseeing in an organized way where the Nottingham University will try and set things up for you, or you can kind of branch out on your own and meet up for dinner. So I think one day we chose to go with the the school to their sightseeing adventures, and then the other two days we kind of went off on our own, explored the Nottingham Castle and the Justice Museum. Um, So you you have a lot of opportunity to do your own thing besides just doing the presentation part of it. You also mentioned you went to London and then you were in Nottingham for the class. Were those two areas different in any way? London's a lot more populated and active, I would say. So when we were in London, we there was a lot we could do as far as sightseeing. The streets were always packed. Buses were always packed. There were people on every corner trying to sell things and setting up shop. At nighttime, there, Raleigh's trying out the social district thing where you can drink and walk. London does that, where you can walk around drinking on the streets. So we went to a musical that night and came out and it was just the streets were just jam-packed with people drinking and having a good time. And Nottingham's a little bit sleepier, quieter. We actually had a bus we had to take at 2 a.m. to get to the airport on our last day and the streets were just absolutely dead and they would not be dead at 2 a.m. in London. So there's definitely um, a population difference, I think, in a party district versus maybe not. So you've already given me some cool memories, but what is the most memorable part of this trip? I think traveling with Corey, I would encourage people to travel with people. I think Maria traveled with another student 
and I think being able to travel with someone and sharing those experiences make it really memorable in itself, but as far as a concrete memory, it would probably be just the nighttime activities in London. Like I said, we went to a musical, then we tried this Italian restaurant. It was very authentic and it was cute. It was open late. It was probably 9, 10 p.m. and it had little lights everywhere. So just the atmosphere. And now switching over to the academic side of things, what would you say is the most useful thing that you learned from this program? Probably research skills. So before you go to Nottingham, you have to take a class at Campbell with Professor Swift. But the way the class is structured is you go ahead and start with what you want to research. Like I knew I wanted to research something in juvenile law. And then Professor Swift will help you work through the topics already out there that have been researched. And your goal is to find an in-between, something that's never been researched, something that there's not a lot of work out there. And so the fact that there's a way, and I didn't even know this, the fact there's a way to find out that there's no other research on a topic, it's really cool and it can be done within a few months, which I think is mind-boggling to me. So I think that the fact that you can walk away with such a valuable knowledge of research that you don't get in other areas of law school would probably be the most beneficial thing I took away. That's actually a nice segue into the next question, which is a little bit about your topic. So the title, the working title of this article you have is Undisciplined Juveniles Encouraging North Carolina Legislation to Create Criteria as to What Constitutes a Serious Offense in the Juvenile Code. Uh, What led you to that topic and where do you see, are you still working on it? Where do you see this going? I am still working on it. Uh, What led me to the topic was I've always had an interest in the juvenile arena. I used to want to be a social worker, and coming into law school, my focus was juvenile law. The topic derived from my work with the Public Defender's Office. I worked as an extern there my first summer, and I realized that there's two types of juvenile offenders, delinquent offenders and status offenders. Delinquent offenders are the minors you hear about. You know, they steal cars. They actually commit criminal acts as minors. Status offenders are minors committing non-criminal acts such as skipping school or they're not coming home by their parents curfew that kind of a thing and those status offenders are being sent to court and so the way this was a real life experience for me in that we had a minor in shackles that came out in front of a judge while we had a minor that was in trouble for talking back to his parents sitting there watching the whole thing and to me that's so terrifying to think that the status offender that just talked back to his parents is in the same courtroom as the status offender that literally couldn't come out of his shackles. And there's a labeling issue there, psychologically speaking, that really concerns me. And so I looked at the juvenile code and the juvenile code gives broad discretion for court counselors to be the ones that determine who goes to court, which is another type of concern, A, because court counselors don't have that You know, they're not judges, they're not lawyers, they don't have that kind of experience necessarily to say who shouldn't shouldn't be going to court. I think that's the legislator's job to put something down that says this is what constitutes a serious offense, this is what should send people to court, because right now, I mean, you have kids being sent to court for back-talking their parents, and it's just, that's not what the juvenile system was created for. Yeah. Now, have you presented this part of it yet in the program? How is that, the presenting experience? It was great. England has a bit of a different system when it comes to the juvenile system, Um, so it was interesting to hear their feedback on what they do over in England compared to what we're doing in America. I got a lot of questions both from the scholars over in England and actually Dean Leonard and people that came over from America, so it was really cool to be able to kind of share that topic and see that other people were excited to see what was going to come from it as well, my research. You mentioned Dean Leonard is one of those people who was asking you questions. I imagine one of the biggest benefits of this program is your networking opportunities. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. So that first night of that dinner I was talking about was Dean Leonard and actually the chancellor of Maine campus, Louise Creek, was there as well. So that was a great networking opportunity. Get to know people outside of school as well. And then, um, yeah, I mean, that it gives an opportunity for us to be able to showcase our research and what work we're doing in law school to the people that invited us to come to law school. So that's that's a cool opportunity. Now, this obviously is a unique experience. What's one story from this trip that you'll remember for the rest of your life? It's a good question. I think it's just the individual memories combined. Like I said, the going to the musical and then immediately going to 
like the cute little Italian restaurant after and then seeing how just England functioned as a whole on the streets and how the hotel functioned and just the overall experience I think is what's going to make it in itself a memory that lasts a lifetime and then little interesting kind of tidbits like the biggest piece of advice I would give is on the plane ride to and from especially when you're looking at a 10 to 11 hour plane ride definitely pay the extra money to get tickets beside the person you're traveling with because we just assumed, you know, we didn't travel a lot before. We just assumed, well, we bought our tickets together. We'll be together. And that's not how that worked. We both got middle seats near each other, but we were crammed in between two strangers for 11 hours and we immediately bought seats for the ride back as soon as we got off that plane. So yeah, so have a travel planner with you. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We are back on the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. I'm Brian Hedrick, and I'm here with Maria Alzate talking more about the Campbell and Nottingham LLM program. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically why you decided to take part in this program? So I am an entrepreneur by trade before law school, and that's actually the main reason why I decided to do the program, because it's an international LLM. It's very beneficial for certain jobs that will require LLMs after school. And I think just the correlation between the cost, the feasibility of getting it done at the same time as your JD was just a no-brainer for me. And as far as the trip planning and all that, how was it preparing to go? It was fairly easy because the administration here sends you just a breakdown of everything you need to have. And there's a course that you have to take beforehand. And so you are very well prepared with your topic, with all the research you have to do. So the academic side of it is just a breeze, I would say, if you put in the work for the course. And planning the actual trip is also easy. I think the real only logistic that people may struggle with is, you know, my flight there and back. What are the days? Do I want to get there before? Do I want to get there after? I personally got there before and had a few days to myself and I made friends in the program. And so we traveled around and that was great. Awesome. That's actually a nice segue into the next question. So since you got there early or any downtime you had, what were things you kind of did outside of school? So we stayed in London for a while. And what you usually do is you fly into Heathrow. And so you're already in London. And if you're there just in time to go to the program, you have to take your train straight up to Nottingham. And that's about two to three hours, I would say. And what we did was come earlier. We stayed in London. We went all over the city, took a red bus. We did all of the museums. We saw Big Ben. We walked about 39,000 steps that day and it was insanely cool. We had the best time. And then two days later, we went up to Nottingham and it was pretty easy. And what was the most memorable thing about the area and this memorable activity that you got to do? In Nottingham, we did this. So every day they gave you an itinerary of what you would do and any gaps in between that you filled on your own before or after. And you make friends. And so you all text each other and meet each other to do some fun stuff. And we actually ended up going back to a place that the itinerary had taken us. And we were actually with the dean here, Dean Leonard, who was there and the dean at Nottingham Law. And they took us to this church. And at first, we're all thinking, why are we going to church? Uh, It was the most beautiful structure from the outside, gardens, just beautiful pergolas, canopying over it. You go inside and it's actually a restaurant. And it was so much fun. This whole gastronomic experience, fun drinks, and the stained glass. It all had a story. It had a history. So that was actually my favorite part because it was a lot of fun coupled with some academics learning about what the church was and where it came from and all of that good stuff. Nice. And I know one thing that they stress here, at least, is how important networking is. I imagine this, more than anything, was a really good networking opportunity for you. Absolutely. This was not only working with Campbell Law faculty, but also Nottingham Law faculty. You get assigned an advisor, so you're very closely connected with them if you make the effort and follow up. But on top of that, you meet all of these other individuals from the UK who want to partake in the program or who are part of it in some capacity or another. And they're great resources. They have amazing questions and they're very immersed in it. Most importantly, you have not only students at Campbell Law doing this, but outside 
outsiders, like older individuals who are established, who have been practicing law for a long time. There were a few individuals who had their own practice. There were judges. I mean, it was insanely cool how much of an opportunity for networking there was. Yeah. And whether it be from the prior class or the time in Nottingham or from one of those people you mentioned, what's the most useful thing you learned while you were there? The most useful thing I learned is to kind of relax. I felt like I was very high strung and worried about how my presentation was going to go, especially because I went on the second day of presentations. And so I had already seen these incredible judges come through and present this topic. And I was feeling very, I don't know, inadequate. And you start really feeling this imposter syndrome sink in and you're thinking, can I actually do this? I'm just a little student. I don't even have my JD yet. But it was the factor of just relaxing and letting it go and knowing that you did all of the work. And now you're presenting your little baby that you've put together for so long. And that was the most valuable lesson. Yeah. And I'll come back to the topic here in a minute, but you said something interesting in imposter syndrome. Yeah. When you came back here, did you feel, I would imagine you probably did, but did you feel more confident in your abilities? Oh my gosh, absolutely. From presenting across the pond in a completely different country with, of course it's English, but the accents and the customs are all different. The food is different. I mean, from doing that with the culture shock and a whole different faculty asking questions that you're not really used to because the culture uh, is just much more different than here. I came back and I just felt, I don't know, I feel like the same person, but different on the inside. It it changes you. It becomes, makes you become a little bit more worldly. And um, that comes with a lot of confidence, of course. And see, that's interesting too. So you said there are custom differences, you said you had culture shock. Mm-hmm. Describe that a little bit more. What was different? To me, it was the food at first. It was very hefty food. And so we ate a meal and it was just not a huge portion like we have in the States, but it was like a meat pie or the peas. We all wanted to try the, you know, fish and chips and that came with peas. And sometimes it was paste. Other times it was like actual little peas in a little bowl. Um, and so getting used to what you're ordering is just hearty stuff. It's meat, potatoes, and really the only light dish I had was the fish and chips. But even that felt heavy because it was fried. So... Do you know why peas? Why were there mm-hmm. so many peas? <laughs> I feel like I asked this when I was there. And to be honest, I forgot. <laughs> I don't know why so many peas, but it's a thing. I don't know if it's regional, if it's like a part of their trade over, you know, history and, you know, countries dedicate whatever national dishes and stuff they have based on what their their crop is. So maybe that's one of those. That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> now getting back to your topic, in the program, as you mentioned, you present a topic for about 10 minutes and they ask questions and things like that. Now, the topic you chose has an extremely long title. I'm going to try to get it right. <laughs> Overcoming regulation hierarchies, blockchain as a viable solution to the economic hindrances of conflicting legal authorities on Schedule One substances. Yeah, that's a mouthful. What does that mean? And what led you to a topic with such a long name? So what led me to this topic, and I'm still working on the name. When I presented, I actually did a name that was super short, stirring the pot. And I just don't know if I want to use that because I think that can be connected to just given some negative connotation. And so I came across this topic because before law school, like I said earlier, I'm, I was an entrepreneur. I was investing in businesses, working with private investors. And there was a business in the West Coast that was practicing in, in this realm with marijuana where it was legal. And they came across so many bottlenecks and hindrances to be able to grow. And so when I was now here in law school, researching a topic, I wanted something that was so novel that not a lot of people are talking about. So I started doing research, you know, on the conflicting laws, you know, the supremacy clause of the constitution says that federal law is king and that trumps state law. But then at the state level, different states have legalized it But the conflicting portion remains because these companies, while they're able to open and operate, they're not able to operate like the next business. In order to grow and continue to promote entrepreneurship, you need to be able to use banking services. You need to slide the credit card. And 
you need to be able to take loans out so you can grow, you know, OPMs, use other people's money. And these companies are unable to do that. And so I found myself in the past reflecting on how these companies were keeping every transaction in cash in a safe. They had millions of dollars just sitting there. And I thought that that would just open up way for fraudulent activity. And so how do we make these laws coexist? And this is my solution is blockchain, which is a whole other entity I work with before law school and it was blockchain for hospitals and there are so many different applications because people think blockchain they think cryptocurrency no blockchain is the mechanism that allows cryptocurrency to to function and so they're two totally different animals but blockchain allows for safe you know, unbroken chains that you can continue to build on to be able to report without tampering with it. And that's essentially what this paper gets at is to allow those states where it is legal. It's not actually promoting legalization by any means, but it's promoting, uh, allowing those companies to partake in, you know, the regular banking services that other companies are able to do and do that in a way that they can properly and confidently report it to the federal government so that they can continue to grow and do business. Now, as far as taking that topic, because clearly you're enthusiastic about it, and that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. As far as taking that topic, is it 100% on you, just independent? You go find your topic, you go research it, you pick it, you write it, you do everything. Or do you have people to kind of go to in this program to ask for help? So you have your professors of the course, and they're definitely there to help. They guided me to, to pick a topic, to narrow it down. I had all of these wild ideas, but I wasn't sure in the end. I really didn't know. And what's very interesting at first is it's such a fast-paced course that within the first week, you've picked your topic, really. And so I was a little afraid that I didn't pick a, a right topic, and I would have to change it later because there's so much work that follows, you know, have you been preempted? What research do you need to do to back up your, your point. Uh, and I think that the professors, Professor Swifts especially, um, and Judge Collins, they helped tremendously in narrowing down a topic that would be feasible to write about that wouldn't leave too many doors open to a gazillion different topics. So it's kind of both. It's a balance between what you want and what you're interested in with the help of the professionals here that are kind of guiding you so you can narrow it and make it a really good topic to write about. And you said you're still working on writing this or are you done with this at this point? I'm still working on writing it. I'm actually, it's ever changing because for example, I thought I was done earlier in the semester and then the Biden administration promoted some new initiatives using blockchain. And so that kind of opens up different doors and avenues for things that I think I shouldn't just shut the door and not talk about it. So I want to wait and see what other doors open up between now and the time that I would turn in my paper so I could graduate on time with the LLM and the JD together um, to add in any other information that pops up between now and then because it's an ever-changing topic and I think that that's a thing for everyone. So you want to stay current, you want to keep doing research and it's very simple because it's all scholar articles that you're looking at, scholarly articles that are going to help you decipher, A, have I been preempted still or this is new information that's going to work work for me and I can use. So it's ever changing. At some point, you're going to get to a point of finishing. When that happens, I imagine it's a big, you know, big deal, big goal, big accomplishment. Is there a way for people to go read this? Yes, absolutely. So you have an option to do an article or to do a dissertation. And so most people choose an article just because the option for that is shorter, but that article can be picked up by really any school, any law review. If you want to submit it, you have the freedom to do that. It's yours. But regardless, it will be out there and it will be in the system and people can read it. And the system I talk about is like Lexis, Westlaw, all of that good stuff. So anybody with the right topic or title can research it, find it, and it will 100% be out there. Awesome. So now shifting back to your experience, what is your favorite memory or the most memorable thing you did on this trip? What's the best story you have? Let's see the best story. It was actually while I was presenting and I was, I, I normally get really terrified when I present and I forget what I'm doing and what I'm saying and things are just flying out of my mouth before my brain can process it. And we were 
in the middle of the questions at this point. And I didn't realize how much controversy and excitement at the same time I had sparked between all of the faculty there and visiting, which were, you know, visiting Campbell Law. Um, and so I'm getting questions left and right and left and everywhere. And I'm answering them in a way that I think is pretty articulate. And I, I look at the laws and I reference these things, but there was one question and it actually came from my advisor. And she said, why would banks even want to do this? I mean, why would they care? And I couldn't think of a lawyerly way to answer the question other than to word vomit um, banks like money. And the whole room busted out laughing. The judges that we had met just a few days prior that had already presented, and you know, partners of their firm, they were rolling. And I didn't realize what I had done because of course I have no idea what I'm saying because words are just flying out of my mouth. And so I was shaking, wondering, looking around why everyone's laughing so hard. Some people had fallen out of their seats. And it was later on that I found out that I had said that and it just made everybody crack up because when you really think about it, yes, banks like money. That's their full purpose. And so the answer was very like factual, but at the same time, like, why would she say such an answer in that way? Um, and that turned out to be my most favorite moment because I'm not like a very funny person per se. And to have everybody rolling was quite the experience. Hey, if it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now as we close out, if there's somebody like kind of on the edge right now saying, maybe I'll go, maybe I won't. What's one piece of advice that you would give to them? I would say... In the words of an entrepreneur, time is money. And it really depends on whether you want to have to dedicate the time later on after you complete your JD. We had the judges saying in this program that they wish that they had this opportunity while they were in law school. And I totally agree with that. And I think it's a no brainer. Not only is the hybrid system something that really helps with cost because cost in this sense is going to be like one fifth of what you would actually pay for after your JD, but also the ability to take the class together with your JD courses and to graduate together with your JD. I mean, that's just a no brainer to me and to someone who might be on the fence. I would say, are you willing to spend so much more money on this after you're now in the workforce and might not have the same time to dedicate. Maybe it's a year, maybe it's a two year program, but that's a tuition for that long that you're paying and time that you're taking outside of now your established life and work to do this. So think about it long and hard. And I think that a lot of people will find that this is a great decision to make. Yeah. It always goes back to the money. People yeah. like money. Exactly. <laughs> So thank you again for joining us. And that concludes this episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. Wow, thank you. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.